Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. I'm Richard Roper. The Christmas season is upon us, <laughs> and the Christmas movies are upon us. We'll talk about that in just a moment. First, let me tell you that the Royal Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing, and drives your overall business success because they believe that today's online world is your opportunity. Get started today at AmericanEagle.com. You know how we like to celebrate anniversaries around here, unless they are our own. <laughs> <laughs> but Eddie Murphy's got a pretty good one. Uh, December 1984, a very different time, Rokan, and that was the time when Beverly Hills Cop was released, uh, premiered in theaters. Eddie Murphy, already this big star, right? He had done Saturday Night Live, and he had done 48 Hours with Nick Nolte, the, mm -hmm. the first, one of the first of the new wave of... R-rated buddy cop movies. We'd seen them for years before that, but really the next level yeah. in terms of yeah, the yeah. violence and the action and the, the body and, you know, mm -hmm. some politically incorrect humor. And then comes Beverly Hills Cop. And I, you know, what? I don't know if it was written for him, but it felt like it was. And within 15 minutes, you're like, okay, we already saw in 48 hours because he's really, Nick Nolte's really the lead there. Right. You know, because he's the guy that gets him out and, and you know, gets him out of prison and for, Eddie Murphy's for the 48 hours. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a a lead vehicle for Eddie Murphy, and it is just like, well, there's a movie star, I oh, mean, yeah. and, and and a great hit. And going back and watching it recently, it's so funny. And then it's got you know when the when the violence happens in those movies in the '80s, it's real and it's raw, and it's tough and it's edgy. And there's this great supporting cast, of course, uh, Judge Reinhold and Ronnie Cox. Right. And you know, just ev almost every role. In fact, uh, Jonathan Banks, who people know later, you know, played the character of uh, Mike on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's like the henchman for the bad guy. You can still see the same. He was actually in 48 Hours as well. But Eddie Murphy, it's his movie. And he gets all these showcase sequences. And he's great in his Detroit Lions uh, jacket <laughs> right? in Beverly right. Hills. Because the twist there is that he's a Detroit cop. Who has to go work Beverly Hills? The two most opposite in the mid 1980s communities in America. Yeah, yeah, and he's just constantly amused about this. And well, it's a little bit of Eddie Murphy's story. He's a uh, you know he's from New York, you know neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Didn't grow up with a lot, uh, and then became this huge star. And you know there was probably a moment where, but probably the first time Eddie Murphy went to Hollywood was he was already signing movie contracts. You know that's but, probably true. But you know that opening, the first time when his character of Axel Foley. He goes to L.A. and he's, you know, Hollywood, and he's just laughing at everything. And even the, you know, the Beverly Hills police station. He's like, what? This is your police station? Because we've already seen his precinct in Detroit <laughs> where Paul Reiser has a fun role as his, you know, kind of sidekick buddy who's helping him with stuff. And you just see the contrast. Even the way the movie was filmed where everything in Detroit is gray and brown and dark and forbidding and everything in Beverly Hills is sunny and bright. But there's more corruption there, right. as we find out, than there was even in Detroit. There's no daytime scene in Detroit. That's true. It's all undercover stuff. And, yeah. it, and, and again, the, a lot of this stuff became cliches, but if you want to go back to 1984, you know, it's got a classic scene where Axel gets called into his boss's office and gets read the riot act. You killed, you know, you spent $50,000 on this, and I'm, you know, the man's going to have my ass. You know, they always get called into the, yes. to the sergeant or, you know, whoever it is, the lieutenant's office to get yelled at. And then, of course, when in Beverly Hills, it's sort of like, 
uh, Detective Foley, we'd appreciate it if you don't interfere with our business. We're going to escort you back to the airport. You know, everything <laughs> is done differently. Uh, John Ashton and Judge Reinhold is the two by-the-book cops who eventually yep. threw the movies as they continued. And yeah, the sequels aren't as good. Beverly Hills Cop 2 is pretty good, actually. Uh, but they become these key supporting players, and he brings out the best in them. And it's just... It's one of those films, sometimes you go back to the 80s and you're like, you're just cringing. Mm. You don't with Beverly Hills Cop. It's just, and Eddie Murphy, he's a, he's a baby, but yeah. he carries the movie. And you cringe at things that you absolutely thought were the greatest thing you ever saw. Yeah. And that's not the case with Beverly Hills Cop because it was great then, it's great now. And Eddie Murphy is ultimately watchable. He's one of the great movie stars in the history of the cinema. And he is certainly... A, a, a cultural icon in so many ways as a stand-up comic right yeah, he followed yeah. richard pryor and george carlin right as the two sort of great mega hit multi-dimensional yeah, well, comics and you mentioned the, you know the stand-up and you know some of the stand-up is problematic and eddie murphy's acknowledged that but it's still he's he was unbelievably funny and people well, i want to stop right yeah, there yeah comedy should be problematic well, I'm we, sorry. We, we could do a whole podcast on that, yes. you know, and yeah, I mean, like he's doing the honeymooners and it's like, not, I want you know, you know, the whole thing about, yeah, yeah we know. Okay. Yes. Uh, but, you know, it, we now live in an era and I think it's great because standups, uh, you know, of all shapes, sizes, uh, gender identity, you know, ethnicity, whatever the case may be, get showcase specials on Netflix and elsewhere. It's not just the giants. I mean, there's sometimes I've never even heard of someone I'm like, wow, they're brilliant. But. We go back a generation or two, stand-up movies. They were films that you would go sure. to see in the theater. That's right. how you'd see, you know, unless you know, Eddie Murphy, of course, would go on tour. But if you couldn't get a chance to see him, you'd pay money to see these movies. Richard Pryor, Live at the Sunset Strip, uh, Eddie Murphy. So it's hard to overstate the magnitude of Eddie Murphy's stardom in the 1980s. No, where Eddie, the only guy and he deserved it. It was None of it was like, where did this guy come from? He didn't earn it. He was just, he was just brilliant. I mean, he was even to the point where he could do a musical thing. And remember, Party All the Time. My girl likes to party all the time. Yeah. Party all the time. I, it's not a good song. I wouldn't say it was his best thing that but, he did. But, you know, it was... But a, he could know, sing. Yeah. Although... You know, from Eddie Murphy came Jamie Foxx in a lot of ways because Jamie Foxx is that same, you know, triple yeah. threat guy. Jamie Foxx can... is a better musician, though. He was trained as a musician. Right. You know, he, he went to school uh, and is much superior. But but I think doors were opened in a way, you know, yeah. by Eddie Murphy in a lot of ways. But if you go back and go, you do a double feature of 48 hours, the first 48 hours in Beverly Hills Cop. And I was just right around college at the time, you know, hadn't yet decided I was going to be a film critic or what I was going to do. But I just remember as a movie fan thinking we were getting into a different kind of movie about cops that was taking. I mean, there were great gritty cop movies like The French Connection, you know, 10 years earlier. But the buddy cop movie was going to the next level. And then yeah. we had Lethal Weapon after that. And each one of these, you know, kind of built on the other. And, and there's a reason why we're still talking about these films, you know, nearly 40 years later. They're really well made. The scripts were good. The direction was good. The supporting players really added a lot. There were showcases for Mel Gibson, Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy, big stars. Now, these but, are also great actors. But too. you had a lot of veteran character actors who had done films going back to the 50s and 60s who knew exactly what they were going to lend to the movie and and had the confidence in their own abilities to let the young stars shine, but really gave the film, you know, that weight of reality. You know, Beverly Hills Cop, even though it's a, it at times can be a broad comedy, we believe that world. Oh, we yeah. believe he's in that world. Lethal Weapon, the first one. 
go back and you look at some of the sequels, not so much. The first Die Hard, not a not a buddy movie particularly. Although you could say that Hans Gruber and and John McClane had, had a buddy dynamic. Yeah, that's just true. On either sides, right? But all of those films, and we're talking about a five or six year period, row where those films all came out. The, the the risks seemed real. The deaths and the killings seemed real. They weren't fast and furious and over the top type movies where everything was a cartoon. These were R movies that earned their R rating because people were in real jeopardy, which made the star performances I think shine that much more. To this day, I will use Victor Maitland, yeah, as an alias, <laughs> <laughs> the villain from Beverly Hills Cop, the art dealer, <laughs> yeah, guy. <laughs> is Mr. Oh, is Mr. Victor Maitland yeah. here is one of my favorite lines oh my God. in all of cinematic history. And, you know, maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. Okay. Well, that says more about you than even Beverly yeah. Hills Cop. No, I like that scene. All right. All right. Other other holiday-related uh, stuff. I, I love to talk about this every year. Um, the so-called war on Christmas. You know, we get this from the conservative media Every year, and it's always cracked me up because you cannot drive For down decades, the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think we all get it. It's a manufactured war because Christmas is everywhere. But the the popular and easy thing to do is especially talk about Hollywood and their war on Christmas. And they right. they they don't want any. You know, when a film comes out that's a very Christian film, they always say like, oh. You know, they're not even talking about, uh, you know, the latest film, you know, that espouses Christian values. And, and a lot of times they're like, well, they're smaller films and, you know, they're not huge releases. But what we've seen in recent years, actually, we've seen more Christmas movies in the last three or four years than in the previous 100 years in Hollywood, wrote. And this is mostly through the Hallmark Channel. Uh, our friends at Lifetime, and now everybody else is jumping on the bandwagon, Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max, because what they found is if you do, you know, kind of a typical, usually very sweet, sentimental mm -hmm. Christmas movie that doesn't cost a ton of money, it gets a ton of views, clicks, likes, whatever right. you want to call it. So it cracks me up when people say, oh, you know, Hollywood, they, they just hate Christmas. I, I'm going to give you some titles, okay? Mm -hmm. A partial list. All right. These are all new Christmas releases coming to you on one streaming service after another. An Ice Wine Christmas, uh -huh. which actually sounds interesting to me. Ice wine. That's a, What is that? An ice wine? It's like a like a certain kind of chilled dessert wine. Or yeah. Like an Ice Wine of, yeah. Christmas. Yeah, Dancing Through the Snow. Oh. You Make It Feel Like Christmas. <laughs> Baking Spirits Bright. I think in many cases, they probably greenlight these movies based on the title. Without question. Because you hear Baking Spirits Bright, you're like, okay, it's going to be about someone who makes cookies. and it, right. you know, They the, don't the have a script. Yeah. They just came up with a concept, yeah. they sell it, and they go. Match Made in Mistletoe, mm. Saying Yes to Christmas, A Christmas Village Romance, A Christmas Dance Reunion, Father Christmas is Back, A Boy yeah. Called Christmas, Christmas Again. I actually like Christmas Again. It's about a little girl in the Chicago area. And she doesn't like the way Christmas is going because her parents got divorced and now dad's got a new girlfriend. And she says, I just want to do over. And it becomes Groundhog Day. She keeps waking up and it's Christmas again? <laughs> and she starts manipulating things just like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. Oh. Uh, I will say this, having seen some of these films, Ro, yeah, there is a formula. I give the networks credit, and I'm sure it's done mostly from a business standpoint. They don't call them holiday films. They don't do the generic, you know, there's a whole thing, oh, Target, they don't say Merry Christmas, they say Happy Holidays. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, these Which, uh, But they the put way, Christmas okay. in the titles. Yes. Okay. All right. You know, it drives me <laughs> absolutely insane. And uh, I've had really dear friends that I've had this debate with. I'll never forget 
<laughs> one Christmas special that we were doing on the radio. We would go out and do these uh, Christmas concert events yeah. uh, to raise toys for Toys for Tots. And uh, the late, great Arlie Ermey would join us for many, many, many of them. And he was, as you know, and listeners of this may know, he was a very dear friend of mine. We didn't always agree on things politically, but we loved each other like brothers. And he came out onto a show we were doing uh, in a southern suburb of Chicago at a big, one of those big old you know, movie theater type things, yeah. like 3,000 seater. And he... he uh, he started in on the war on Christmas. And I literally looked at him, and this was 20 years ago. Right? Yeah. And I looked at him and go, what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, they want to say happy holidays. I go, well, happy holidays is a way of including people who may not celebrate Christmas. And you know who doesn't celebrate Christmas? Observant Jews don't celebrate Christmas. Do you want to go after Jews? Because if you look at like the whole way that Fox News and some of these other organizations that you know, are big proponents of the war on Christmas, you know, the ones that are telling the story, they go, well, uh, happy Hanukkah. Well, if you're going to say Hanukkah and Christmas, isn't it better to say happy holidays so that you're saying, hey, this is a holiday for Jews and Gentiles and sometimes Ramadan hits in December. There's, you know, there's Greek celebrations. There's tons of different religions. There's also people that don't observe. And there is, I, I did see one giant conservative entity recently tweeting something like uh 60 million americans say they won't be christmas shopping this year to which the responses came quickly there are more than 60 million americans who don't celebrate christmas so why would they be shopping right well you know okay i mean uh, the, the, it's a christian you know yes. it's, it's, the majority of, of the population is still christian but there are I, i'm gonna take a wild guess a hundred million people who don't celebrate Christmas in this country. So to say 60 million people aren't even going to shop for Christmas, like, why would they? It's not their holiday. I come from a mixed family. and Neurotic and oh, paranoid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's, That's true. true. That is really true. So I come from this mixed family. There's Jews, there's Christians, there's, I don't know, Zen Buddhists. I don't know who else That's is fine. in it. But, but the, the whole deal. And, uh, and I was married to an observant Jewish woman. Yes. And it was a very interesting moment at Christmas because I was not, you know, in in any way religiously trained. Mm -hmm. To me, Christmas is about Santa and it's about All cartoons. The material no, it is for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. right. Your Charlie so, Brown Christmas, I didn't get Santa it. Claus presents, eggnog, cocktail parties. I didn't get it. Yeah. And I always had a Christmas tree, even though, uh, you know, my family was half Jewish when I was growing up, but mm -hmm. they weren't observant at all, so it didn't really matter. And so... <laughs> so, so when I actually married somebody who, you know, was of faith, mm -hmm. uh, it turned into a moment of, well, why can't I have a Christmas tree? Well, we don't keep Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, what do you mean? What, what, what is that? I don't even know what that means. And I had to understand, and that's what really locked it in for me, this whole idea of ha happy holidays. Because it's, that was, a, I mean, that came from a, not only a great, you know, thousands of year tradition yeah. right and the and the hanukkah celebration is uh, you know you know based on a uh, battle the maccabeans the whole thing you can look it up but that's that's become a holiday for people of the jewish faith 
in America, right? Because and in other parts of the world but where to have there is Christmas the children, yeah, around yeah, that time of year, yeah, yeah. right? Because it wasn't really about you know a, a, about a celebration as yeah. much. It was about you know kind of the sticktuitiveness of 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 getting through this really exactly. really you know yeah. terrible moment. So <laughs> I'm like. I, I, and I learned something really important in that moment, which was, and I was like not taking any of this seriously. To yeah. me, it's just, it's like, I got to have something to get me through the darkness of winter in the Midwest, yeah. Yeah. right? So I'm not interested in any of that. I just need some sort of celebration or reason to go out and drink. That was it. Well, I think, you know, in the case of Christmas too, and I, you know, again, as someone raised Catholic, I don't want to offend anybody, but I don't know how to tell you this. There's no record that Jesus was actually born on the morning of December 25th. No, as a matter of yeah, fact, it's, it's, like, it, yeah. it's well, in all the, the spring, historical record. Right? Yeah, it also didn't look like the holy cards, but that's a whole other thing. Let's, let's, we won't get into that. But right. but uh, you know, but again, it is. I mean, there. I, I I love the season, by the way, and I'm more than happy, you know, to take my mother to church. And I'm still, uh, you know, I consider myself Christian. I'm not offended if anybody says happy holidays. Right. I don't give a shit about any Why of that. Why not bring people celebrate in? or don't. Right. I find it interesting that these networks in this day and age are like, no, you know what? We're going to call these movies Christmas movies. They're Christmas movies. They're not holiday movies. You know, it's really interesting. People of the Jewish faith who are very conservative in America, there are a lot of very conservative mm. that love the conservative media and that, you know, it's it really it comes down to um, an issue about Israel and a bunch of other things, sure. right? And and so I always wonder this when you see it on conservative media, this whole, you know, like the, the war on Christmas and we won't say happy holidays. It must be a very conflicting moment for people who are very political about this, because at the same time, the networks will say, oh, we must defend Israel. But at, while they're saying that, they're also saying, hey, but stop saying happy holidays. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is, too, if you want to just look at it from a strictly strategic, cynical, political viewpoint – why would anybody declare a war on Christmas? Right. You know, when there's that many, that right. big of a voting block. No, right. no politician other than some, probably some fringe asshole somewhere yeah. is that, and I'm running on the platform. I'm declaring war on Christmas. Oh, well, that's how it happened. And and there are a lot of fringe assholes, period. Yeah. I mean, that's we've almost turned well, into a yes. government of fringe assholes. Well, and some fringe assholes set fire to the Fox Christmas tree in front of the Fox headquarters, Fox oh, News God. headquarters in New York. And listen, they got the guy. I don't know what his problem is. It's a dick move and, you know, prosecute right. him. But it was interesting to see Fox cover it like the insurrection that they, the way they didn't cover the insurrection. They were like, <laughs> to come to our home, to invade our sacred space. Yeah. But I'm like, well, how did you feel about on January 6th? There was some sort of stuff going on there. So we are really, really <laughs> in the moment of the United States of irony. That's where we are. We are not anyway. We are not in any way able to see beyond our own agenda at this moment in America. And it's so crazy. That's the beauty of what post-World War II America mm. was like. Now, there was a lot of bullshit, right? I mean, there was still had Jim Crow South. You still have, remember, the, as we'll recall, there were black artists who were traveling you know, around America. They had to go in through the, the kitchen doors. They can go in the front of a hotel in the north and the south. Right. I mean, there were all kinds of crazy bad things. I don't want to lionize or romanticize what that era was all about because we weren't over that yet. Right. But there at least was a sense of unity because there had been this collective experience and we wanted to move forward. And there were so many. And, I, you know, you, you talk to World War Two veterans. There's fewer and fewer left. Mm. About how 
they feel about hatred and about war and all of that because they experienced the life and the death and they lost their friends and they saw things that humans will never forget when they see. Mm -hmm. And we need to have more compassion for each other because what we're doing right now is the American experience at war, even though we've been at war essentially for 20 years in a way, but it's in... Uh, you know, much smaller populations of people going off to war and then coming back from war. And yes, I don't in any way mean to minimize the great sacrifice that American service men and women have done in mm. Iraq and Afghanistan and other places around the world that we don't even hear about. And that's all very, very much for real. However, having said that, we haven't had this grand cultural moment mm. where we all have a reckoning and we all see how hatred and the you know this sort of mass media hatred that that you know Germany spread around the world and that that uh, Mao spread around China in which there was genocide as a result. Yeah. This is a moment this time of year to remember humanity to remember how much we should love each other, not hate each other. And the best way to do that is to go dancing through the snow for an ice wine Christmas, <laughs> and you'll be baking spirits bright. Oh, man, I'm sorry I'm making a big speech, but you know, this is the time of year for it. And it's the only way to get through the darkness, because I have seasonal affective disorder. Like, I, it might be terminal, and that's how bad it is. I, I tell everybody I need to be treated. And that's also why Portello's was invented. <laughs> It's one of my favorite places to eat on the planet Earth. And that is absolutely true. I'm not making that up. I I, I probably order from or eat, drive through a Portillo's drive-thru and eat from Portillo's I probably once a week. Probably, I would say. And you know why? Because they got the best hot dogs. They got the best Italian beef. They got the best Italian sausage. And <laughs> they got great salads. They got great French fries. They got great everything that you want if it's comfort food or uh, what do they call fast casual now? Whatever that is, mm. you you have got to stop by a Portillo's if you haven't done it yet. And if you live outside of the area in which there are Portillo's, you can order the stuff online. And I always tell you, order the chocolate cake because it's the best chocolate cake you're ever going to have in your life. You can think, well, now how is a fast casual restaurant in Chicago going to make the best chocolate cake I ever had in my life? Trust me, it is. There are people all over the planet Earth that actually order that cake for their weddings and they build wedding cakes out of the individual chocolate cakes. I'm not making that up. (laughs) Try it. Portillos.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S. That's how you spell it. Portillos.com. What not to watch this weekend? This is unfortunate because we've just talked about, you know, politics and activism. And I have to say, don't watch, don't look up. Now, this is from Adam McKay, who did Vice, who did uh, The Big Short. You know, I like the stuff he's done. He also goes, you know, genius writer and anchorman, you know, movie. So don't look up is this social environmental comedy uh, satire. The cast is amazing. Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep. Jennifer Lawrence, Mark Rylance, all Academy Award winners. The setup here is that Leo plays an astronomer at Michigan State University, and Jennifer Lawrence is a grad student, and they discover a comet. Big discovery, right? Then with a little more research, they figure out that that comet's coming straight to Earth and is going to destroy (laughs) the planet. Not good. I'm sorry to laugh so, at that. But no, no, that's the comedy of it. You know, first of all, we saw this in uh, we saw this in Deep Impact and Armageddon back in right. the day. You know, Bruce Willis is no longer available to go get it. 
So they see, they see this comet coming, and they journey to the White House. Meryl Streep plays the President of the United States, and she's, you know, it's a female, but she's essentially a Donald Trump-type character. Can't pay attention to anything, super conservative, doesn't believe in the science. Jonah Hill plays her idiot son, as if some president would have an idiot son who would be brought into the inner circle, who's now the chief of staff. So Leo and Jennifer Lawrence, their characters, they journey to the White House. We have this discovery. It's 99.9% certain that this comet's going to hit the earth and destroy it. And their immediate response is, why don't we say 70? And it's a possible event. And let's sit on it. And we'll study it. So the rest of the movie is all about the fact that at some point you can literally see the comet that's heading toward the earth. And you have the people that believe in the science. And you have a whole group of people who say, just don't look up. If you don't look up, you won't see the comet. Right. And you can deny the truth. Why so does it's this got not clear, work? It seems genius. Because it's just done in such a heavy-handed way. Over the top. He's shooting fish in a barrel over and over again. So, you know, the dupes, the idiots who are anti-science are played for such fools. And then Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett, they play the hosts of a morning show, very much like Morning Joe. And they have the guests on. And instead of listening to what Leo's saying, they're like, ooh, hot astronomer from Michigan State. Let's make him viral. And they're not listening to the fact that he's like, the world's going to end. And that's kind of the whole joke of the movie, that science and people that believe in facts and rational people know that the world's going to come to an end and the moronic idiots who don't want to admit it don't look up. It's one joke over two hours and 15 minutes. Ooh, Very disappointing. That is a long time. So if it were 90 minutes, it might work. Yeah, I just think the screenplay just needed more work. And you have all mm -hmm. these great actors. But it, you know, I will say, this is the kind of movie that conservative you know, commentators say, look at what liberal Hollywood's doing. I would agree. Because it's clearly <laughs> this metaphor for climate change. Yeah, and the forever, world is yeah. coming to an end and you people won't look up. And it's like, yeah, okay. You know, I, I think it could have been done better. But we got good stuff too. Right? Okay. I want to mention Mr. Saturday Night. This is an HBO documentary about Robert Stigwood, who is this great old school manager, uh, promoter, entrepreneur. He came up in the 60s managing bands like Cream, and then he took on the Bee Gees. But, bro, he's the guy that's mostly responsible for Saturday Night Fever. Right. Bee Gees sent him a bunch of demo tapes of some songs they were working on. He happened to be working on this movie. He was the one that said, wait a minute, these songs work. The Bee Gees did not record those songs thinking they were for a movie starring John Travolta. That's the amazing thing about that. That is amazing. So it's the story about how he put that all together. My favorite anecdote from this documentary, it's called Mr. Saturday Night on HBO. John Avildsen had just directed Rocky, Oscar-winning picture, one of the hottest directors in Hollywood. So he gets hired to direct Saturday Night Fever. And his first decision as the director of Saturday Night Fever is, we're going to lose those BG songs. I don't like them. He then got fired by Robert Stigwood, who brought on John Badham, who then said, I think we should include those Bee Gees songs. So, and the other great thing is, uh, this was a time when movie soundtracks weren't that big of a deal. American Graffiti had become a huge soundtrack, mm -hmm. but it wasn't a big deal. And Barry Diller and Michael Eisner were the heads of Paramount Pictures at the time. Correct. They barely got talked into doing the movie. And then Stigwood said, I want to release a double album. And they're like, fine, go ahead. And he goes, you guys won't have any of the rights to the soundtrack, though. And they're like, fine. He got $4 per album, Stigwood. Oh, God. It sold 40 million copies. Wow. They never got a nickel from the soundtrack, the studio, because they're like, who cares about sound? Nobody buys soundtracks. Right. Uh, well, you know, it, uh, <laughs> the soundtrack, it's still considered the best soundtrack of all time. Yeah, and one of the best-selling albums of any, any, any kind, right? Right. It's yeah. still vinyl, at least, yeah. And I, I was, I, I, you're going to hate me for this, but uh. I didn't really love it. 
I, I don't How know. Dare you. I, I know. I, I don't know what that was about. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. I, again, that's because I'm older than you. I was living the life yeah, of those characters, kid. kind of. So I love that music. Felt kind and of uh, I think actually, even though the Bee songs were great, uh, Disco Inferno, but Tramps was the greatest song and, and put to the best use in the movie. So we got that. Going back in time for another nostalgia trip, our friend Aaron Sorkin, the prolific Aaron Sorkin, who yep. has done everything from Social Network to Moneyball, Trial of Chicago 7. Written he, more words than almost any yeah. other Amazing. Yeah. American writer. Yeah. He has done a movie called Being the Ricardos. And, Ro, you're going to love this film. This is all about one week in the production of I Love Lucy in the 1950s. Nicole Kidman plays Lucille Ball. Javier Bardem plays Desi Arnaz. And... It's all about this one week. They got the number one show in television, 60 million viewers, right? I love Lucy. But there are tabloid stories about Desi's uh, infidelities and breaking news that Lucy's a communist, that the redhead <laughs> is a red, all which happened in real life, not necessarily in the order it happens in the movie. So it's all about the making of the show during the backdrop of this controversy. It's brilliantly done. And J.K. Simmons plays William Frawley. Who was Fred Mertz, right? Yeah. The next, and is brilliant. Probably will get a supporting actor nomination. A lot of people were like, "Oh, Nicole Kidman is Lucille Ball." She gets it because she gets. They have to recreate some of the, you know, the slapstick that they did on the show, and she does that. But she nails the fact that Lucille Ball was this brilliant artist and business person. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, being the Ricardos. I had no idea that they said Lucille Ball was a communist. Yeah. Well, what happened was her grandfather, who essentially raised her, was, and she had checked some boxes and gone to some meetings when she was 18 to make him happy. And now, all of a sudden, it's the 50s, and she you know, she was being labeled a communist. And to her credit, to Desi Arnaz's credit, they're like, look, here's what happened. And Philip Morris, the big sponsor of the show... And CBS actually stood by her, which is pretty incredible. Because oh, in well, the 50s, a lot of people were getting abandoned. But again, 60 million viewers. Right. 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 Well, that might be actually the changing moment where the money, the economy of what was going on was yeah. like, hey, Washington, go fuck yourself. Yeah. And and on top of all that, uh, Lucille Ball in real life was pregnant. And they wrote the pregnancy at her insistence into the show at a time right. where they're like, Little Ricky, you can't do that on TV. And she goes, "I'm not carrying a laundry basket around for like six weeks, six months of filming on this show. We're going to have Lucy be pregnant. Lucy Ricardo will be pregnant on the show. An eight episode arc, starting with Lucy telling Ricky the happy news and ending with the birth of the baby. <laughs> no, no, no. You can't have a pregnant woman on television. Why not? Because it's television." We come into people's homes. Pregnant women often vomit. I know I could any second. May I say something? Frankly, I can't if wait. If Lucy Ricardo's pregnant, the audience's mind immediately goes to, how did she get that way? Lucy and Ricky sleep in separate beds. We'll be pushing the beds together, too. Oh, oh no, 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 no. I'm yeah. sorry, Des. We're going to have to put our foot down on this one. You can't do it. End of discussion. Wow. Yeah. Cool wow. stuff. Yeah. But, and again, it goes back to my point that we weren't all that evolved in that moment of American unity post-war that we, we were still so puritanical that we did not want to have a woman with child. Yeah, and, act- and Lucy makes the point in these arguments and these meetings with executives. She goes, you know, most of the people watching at home are watching with their kids. They know that kids exist and that how it happens. <laughs> God. Okay. I take back what I said earlier yeah. in the podcast. Yeah, which one? And then one? West Side Story. <laughs> yeah, West Side Story we've talked about and is now in theaters, and I really hope people get a chance to see it. Spielberg's 
brilliant reimagination of the 1961 classic. When you talk about movies being remade, there are a lot of films been remade several times. This is one of the greatest remakes ever in the history of cinema. There you go. The Roan Rover Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and much, much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Special thanks to our executive producers, Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius. Demita Menezes is our great production director, and we've put her through the paces on this particular show. We'll see you next time.